You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Cyber CEOs Decoded, where we speak with the CEOs from established giants to up-and-coming disruptors, getting the inside track on what makes a cybersecurity company tick. I'm your host, Mark Fanzadeloff, the CEO of Devo, and today my guest is Dror Davidoff, co-founder and CEO of Aqua Security. Dror, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Mark. As always excited, this is, uh, I think, going to be a pretty active conversation. Where you're from and, and some of your experiences are, are very much related to my areas of interest. So I think we're really going to enjoy this conversation. And you're also often in the Boston area where I'm based. So uh, we've gotten to know each other uh, a little bit over the over the time here. But I love to go back always to the beginning of people who are running security companies. One of the things I think is fantastic about these podcasts is getting CISOs and customers to understand the people running it, where they're from, what motivates them. So Let's start with the real basics. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Israel, which already put certain colors on things. I actually was not on a technology path. You know, many Israeli entrepreneurs start their technology path in high school and then into technology units in the army. I, I did not do that. Right. I served in a combat unit in the army. And then after that, actually thought that I want to do investment banking. Yeah. Oh, wow. The <laughs> Israeli know. Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, some, some version of that. Uh, you know, I, I, it looks interesting, you know, business making, deal making. I really like the international aspect of that. I was, uh, you know, always intrigued with, the uh, you know, global culture and languages. And uh, so I thought that doing international investment banking could be something very interesting for me. So I started in that direction, that path. And, but, very quickly, actually, after school, I did my first degree in, in Israel in economics yeah. and then did the MBA in New York. And after my MBA, I worked for a couple of years in a relatively mid-sized investment bank that doesn't exist anymore. But back in the days, I, I learned what does it mean to be an investment banker. And I figured it's not for me. <laughs> and I was looking to do something else. But what I was doing as an analyst, I was covering technology companies and Israeli software and cyber companies. So that was my first, the first time that I got introduced and learned closer about the software as a, as a world and then cyber within that. And I figured that this could be very interesting. And then um, very quickly after maybe two, three years after school, I find my first a job in tech. Yeah. It was a software company. And um, then from there, you know, it was always tech. Always tech. So I want to pause on Israel for a little while here. And I want to talk to you about what it's like to grow up in Israel because, you know, those of us who are in cybersecurity, we run into people from Israel all the time. And when I ran IBM Security, we acquired a few companies in Israel. I think I had uh, 400 employees on my team at the time and I got to go to Tel Aviv a lot. Israel was founded in I think May 14th, 1948. So it's existed 74 years. It's uh, fought a number of famous battles to preserve its existence. You only have to go back in the history books to know that that part of the world has changed hands many times. But in that context, 74 years is a relatively short uh, period of time, right? And um, I always just wonder, there's a link to cyber, but maybe just starting as just a kid growing up in Israel do you feel that history right away as a kid? Or is it like many kids when you grow up, you just are oblivious? Because, you know, I was born in the Netherlands. I grew up in Boston. You just kind of, you know, you're oblivious to really 
you only uh, really understand your own experience. But what is it like in Israel to grow up? Are you are you aware of this history as you're growing up? Number one, yes, you are aware. We live in a hostile environment in such a short period, having so many in war and fighting for our ex- pure existence in the region is something that we all live or experience through growing up. And then, of course, going to the army, which is mandatory in Israel. So I have to say that Israel as a nation and as economy have gone through a dramatic change from where it was 30, 40 years ago when we grew up to where it is today. As a child, being a small kid in a a 73 world, this was an existential threat. People thought that this is the end of the state. I mean, existential moment for us. Many people back then thought this will be the end of the state of Israel. And I don't think many people in the Western world have experienced something like this in our generation, Mark, right? So it's definitely there. But if you look at the younger generation, then Israel is now a much more stable, again, as a country and as an economy, right? I don't think that we feel existentially threat. There are threats, there are, you know, conflicts that we manage, but it's more managing the conflict rather existential. I think the only threat that is now in the air is, of course, the Iranian and the nuclear threat that they're making. And listen, we're the only country in the world that there are other countries that part of their policy or part of their ideology is to wipe out Israel. I mean, I don't think any other country in the world experienced that. Well, maybe now (laughs) in the Russian-Ukraine conflict. I was going to bring it up. Yes, but I don't think Russian want to eliminate Ukraine. They maybe want to, you know, make it go in a different direction, but they don't want to eliminate it. But the reality is that it's changed dramatically in the last uh, 30 and 40 years. And a lot of this change, in my humble opinion, has to do with tech. Okay, that's an interesting angle. So why do you see that linkage? Because tech opened up an, an unbelievable opportunity for Israel as an economy from being a very dependent economy. Remember, in Israel, it's a small country surrounded by hostile, in a hostile environment with no natural resources whatsoever. And then there are two turns in this story. Number one was technology. So suddenly technology, what is the natural resource you need for technology? Human resource, right? Highly skilled, educated human resource. And from that, we have quite a bit in Israel. That's number one. And then in the last decade, there was also the very surprising uh, discovery of the natural gas resources that we found in the Mediterranean, which also had a big impact. But technology have changed the economy entirely and in turn changed entirely the ability of Israel, the way we think about ourselves. And now Israel is a serious regional power, right? It's not a country that is fighting for its survival. It's a country that has a lot of influence in the region. And I would even say globally have influence definitely compared to its size. At the end of the day, we have less than 10 million people living in Israel, which is a small state, smaller than any state in the US, right? Most, yeah. And as they say here, you're punching way above your weight as a country, I would say. And what I discovered as I was traveling to Israel and we acquired a couple of companies there, that quite a few of those hostile states around you are using Israeli technology uh, and happily, right? They don't talk about it. Yes, so that, that's yes. one thing that surprised me. I, they can't really talk about it because it will be a complete contradiction to their foreign policy. Yeah. But I think that tech opened up for Israel as an economy 
made macro changes in the way we position ourselves in the region, in the way the world look at us. And we've been very, very successful. Now, why are we successful in tech? I think it's a combination of three, maybe more, but three main reasons. Number one, like I said, there are not, no other option to be globally successful out of Israel. Right. You know, there is no industry. There is no history. It's a young country. So there is no history of heavy industry, right? right? We don't have that. We don't have natural resources. So what is the thing that, and we have very limited a, a internal market, right? So we, we have to go out, right? There is no market in Israel. So if you, if you want to scale up, you immediately have to go out of the country yeah. and you have to go far because the surrounding is not yeah. a friendly Can't environment. Next door. Yeah. So you immediately go, have to go overseas to Europe, to North America, to, to the Asian markets. Then a very, very good education system. In technology, English is mandatory. Everyone in Israel speaks English. You know, good enough English, and then if you're professional, you will have good English. So we are tuned internationally, right? And then the third element is what in Israel we call the chutzpah, right? <laughs> this is the, the Israeli attitude to life that um, you have to try. Yeah. Worst case, someone will say no, but you have to try, you have to ask, you have to not agree with the rules and try different ways to do things. And, and again, it's a combination of the geopolitical situation that puts us under a lot of pressure. So we always have to look for shortcuts and, and different ways of doing things and be very resourceful in the way we do things. And, and you still see a lot of that in the startup culture in Israel. I mean, what you will achieve with five or 10 engineers in Israel, you will probably need triple that in any other country yeah. because it's a little bit of a curse because when you try to scale up, you know, it's like herding cats, right? It's very, very difficult to scale an Israeli-style operation. Yeah. So I think those three, and maybe a fourth incredibly important uh, uh, element is the army service. Yeah. It's really the melting pot of the Israeli yeah. culture because everyone go in at the same level. There is no, like in other countries, different people with different uh, education and skill set will go into a different level. Everyone from the chief of staff of the highest rank officer in the army started in the same place that everyone starts. Everyone have to go through the grinder, right? This army service and the basic training and all that. And especially in an immigrant country where you have Russians and Europeans and Americans and Africans all, and, and that is, that is the, the, melting, the melting moment it has to be for that immigrant experience if you haven't melted already. Opens up opportunities for many, many people. And it really levels up. I think it's a very important part of the Israeli culture experience which gives us a lot of these cultural yeah. virtues that I, I was talking about before. And then within that, the Israeli army, again, because we are inferior in number and in resources, from the very early days had to rely very heavily on technology because this is where we had an advantage. This is where we could close a lot of the gaps. So uh, we, we invested very heavily in technology in the defense forces, extremely heavily, yeah. you know, in the... Civil market, we enjoy when people come out of the market. And then within that, you have the cyber world, which is, again, Israeli for many years, a lot of the warfare investment was in cyber just because it has the ability to leverage yeah. a lot of the skills and capabilities. So put all that together, you, you get a very unique opportunity that the Israeli economy got when high tech became a yeah. thing about 30 years ago. 
And that completely transformed us as a society, as an economy, as a country. And today, Israel is an incredible technology hub. It's just unbelievable the number of startups, the number of technology companies. You walk around Israeli, there is presence from any leading technology company in the world. Again, it has huge impact on the social yeah. structure because high-tech also opens opportunities for many people for great success, like in other places. I could talk about this topic and I, you know, often I, I joke because in the Netherlands we're called very direct and I always say, well, I've spent some time working with Israelis. I think uh, we have to compete on which culture is more direct and blunt uh, between the two, but I think you guys might win if I'm honest. But Dror, within that amazing context, how did you grow up? You grew up in a regular house, just normal life? Yeah, regular house, four siblings, Big happy family. Yes, you know, in Israel, we're very family-oriented. Yeah. So I had, I don't know, like 16 cousins all living in the, you know, not necessarily in the same neighborhood, but not far from each other. You know, I was I was into athlete, a, a, you know, a lot of sports. I did the track and fields. And a, as a young teenager, I used to do like semi-professional. I was really oh, yeah. like, I got a couple of medals. Yes, I could really... Like running? Long distance running? and Yes. Yeah. Not long distance, short oh. distance. I used to run 100 meters at 11 seconds, which is not bad for a 14 years old boy. My record in long jump was 6.8 meters. I don't know how, how much would that be no, in, a, in a... Good long way is, is what I would say. Yeah, that's <laughs> impressive. Yeah, so, yes, and I love to play yeah. soccer and basketball are the two most popular sports in Israel. So I love to do that with friends and, and you know, like, Locally, there was a local league that yeah. I was playing in and doing a lot of that. So quite competitive and, you know, love sports. I'm trying to keep a very good sport a lifestyle. And then schooling. I didn't go the the, the usual path. I was uh, actually quite bored in school. So I decided to leave school when I was uh, in 10th grade and uh, just went off and did my own thing uh, before I joined the army. But not... Team 8100 or some of these things. I feel like uh, half of the entrepreneurs I meet, I, they're bragging about Team 8100. You know, yeah. yeah. Yes. So, so, so it's more than half. Like I said, though, those people have an incredible advantage because they get the best in-class training in the world right. in technology. Yeah. So they have a very unique advantage and, and more than half, Mark. I would say probably about 70% of entrepreneurs will come from Technology units in the Israeli army, in the yeah. Israeli uh, um, uh, forces. Most of them 8200, but not only. There are other technology units in the army. I did not work that path. I was in a combat unit and, uh, you know, worked my legs much more than I worked my brain in my army service. Wow. Are those good memories of that time or was it a really difficult time? Both, you know, good memories and difficult memories. It was very intense uh, uh, three years. It's very intense. Uh, my army service was quite intense. Uh, but again, it's part of life in Israel. I was not, I didn't feel anything special. It was like many of my friends did it and it was just part of the, the path. Yeah, that's great. Let's fast forward a little bit. Um, I want to I kind of step through your career and then I want to get to Aqua and, and the founding of Aqua and um, some of the amazing things you're doing there. Tell me, what, what do you see today as the threat landscape in the, in the cloud? Do you still think that that is the the frontier for, for threats, uh, uh, as you see it? How would you describe the, the risk posture in, in the cloud right now? 
oh my God, no, actually the risk, the, 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 the threat landscape is just growing exponentially because I think the, the adversary, the, the, you know, the, the attacker now understand there is much more to, to go after because you know, more and more mission critical applications are moving to the cloud and there is much more to go and, 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 and do damage. Um, you know, we have a research team in Aqua and what we've seen is that the average time for attack, when you put a honeypot of a cloud workload somewhere out there, the average time for attack before it, was, it's, it is being attacked was, you know, reduced by 50% just in the last six wow. months, right? So, so you know, there, there's more and more things that are happening. That's number one. So in the runtime, there is the attack surface in runtime is growing significantly and there are more and more organizations realize that, you know, they need to protect their runtime as much as they protect their infrastructure, right? There is another angle that is becoming a very, more and more awareness is growing in a very good pace, which is the supply chain. So looking at your developer and what's happening there and the immediate impact that has on your cloud environment, right? So we look at this as one pipe, right? So if you're not securing your, your, your beginning of the pipeline, you're just as exposed, right? So we really believe that you have to do end-to-end work if you want to improve your security posture. Cool. So um, I want to cover a couple other topics, but I'm going to summarize. You guys have had an amazing run. You're doubling your revenue every year, your unicorn valuation, you've raised... $135 million in your last round of funding. And I would guess as a fellow CEO that you're on an IPO path yourself. So that that is an amazing position to be in. And I'll pause there, but then I wanted to go back to something you did at the beginning of the founding the company and ask you about that, which is the commitment to a charity. I believe it's called the Shanty House. And I wanted to ask about that, but maybe you, you can correct any mistakes I made in my sentence of the momentum that the company has and, and the trajectory you're on. Then I want to go back to that that moment. Happily, yes, actually, that's even more important. But I'll say that, yes, we're growing at a fantastic pace, doubling the business year after year, and we see incredible market opportunities. So we feel very strong where, with our technology and the product and the offering that we have in the market, and the addressable market that we go after, the market opportunity here is very significant. And we're building this company to stay around. I mean, IPO is on the plan. I cannot you know, put a timeline for that, but it's definitely on the plan. And, and we're scaling. We're now 600 people strong, uh, many hundreds of customers. We have more than 30 of the Fortune 100 wow. uh, customers. So doing well on multiple fronts. Uh, so that is going well for us. I don't like to call it charity. I like to think about it as social impact. I feel that you, me, all of us, we are uh, on the fortunate side of life. Right, we have this amazing opportunity. We work in those great places, and not only you and I. I'm saying the royal we, right? Uh, you know, technology sector as a whole is the leading force in many economies, not only in Israel but in many economies, including in North America and other many other countries. The thing is that right now, at least, it's a very small segment of the population that enjoy this. Maybe 10 percent, maybe 15 percent, if it's very successful. So it's still very, very uh, small percentage of the population. And I think that we are part of a community. We are all are part of a community. And we, we, I feel we have the responsibility to share that with as many people as possible in many, many ways. 
So when we think about social impact, we think about multiple programs. We think about how do we bring people from places geographically or socially that do not have access to high tech and open the door and let, give them an opportunity to, to access. So we have probably six different programs running now in Aqua, whether if it's an internship or an education program for high schools, training program for people that do not have technology background, et cetera, et cetera, where we try to open the door for more people to have an opportunity and enjoy this good fortune that we have. So that's one thing that we do. And in some of those programs, we work in cooperation with non-for-profit organization that help weak populations. So we have that with the young people. Again, are simply not fortunate. The foundation opportunity, it starts with a good foundation to build themselves and, you know, give you trying to give them an opportunity and help them. Uh, we, you know, we just announced a, a beautiful sponsorship of uh, Pascal uh, uh, Berkovich, who's a Paralympian uh, uh, athlete. And she's uh, kayaking and she's practicing for the uh, Paris 24 Paralympics uh, Games that are coming. So we try, you know, there are multiple programs that we do in order to have social impact, to impact the communities that we live in, whether it's in Boston or in India or in Tel Aviv, Israel, wherever we are, wherever we have offices, wherever we have presence, we try to do that. And it's a big part of the aquaculture. That's amazing. Hugely uh, inspiring, Dror, to, to hear that. And I know just to having met many of your team members that that's a big part of the ethos of the company. So I think that's, that's fantastic. Maybe a last piece of advice uh, from you for aspiring leaders, you know, people who want to have Drawer's job someday, CEO of a company. What's your advice for aspiring leaders? In the spirit of uh, today's, you know, the last few months economic uh, uh, climate, and I just wrote a couple of blogs about this. I think responsible management, responsible leadership is something that pays off in the long term, Right. So sometimes you, you look and you want to do the shortcut or you want to have a quick win. Right. But if you really want to build a serious company for the long term, you have to take responsible hiring, spending, building. You have to make responsible decisions and really think about, we see so many companies that got themselves into very difficult situation just because they were tempted with high valuation and too much money. And now they find themselves in very difficult situations. So being responsible on fronts is not very rewarding short-term, but it is very rewarding long-term. Yeah. So if you want to build a real business, long-term business, stick to responsible values. Well, you remind me of my grandmother's favorite expression, which was being normal is crazy enough. <laughs> and being responsible in this market and running these companies is crazy enough. And I think uh, that's a great, a great piece of advice for aspiring leaders. So Dror... Thank you so much for joining us on Cyber CEOs Decoded. Thank you for having me here. Thank you, Mark. And we will have to continue over a beer someday. I'm looking forward to it <laughs> and right here locally. And thank you to our audience for listening. Um, hope you enjoyed this discussion. We covered a lot of grounds from the beautiful country of Israel and, and Tel Aviv as a great city to a wonderful company called Aqua. So, Dora, thank you again. And be sure to join us for our next episode of Cyber CEOs Decoded. Thank you. 